And the main idea is in polarized training is that you spend very little time in zone two between the two thresholds. But actually, when you go hard, you go above, you go at the anaerobic threshold or above it, and and the rest is easy below the aerobic threshold. That Triathlon Show, episode seventy-eight. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. As always, I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I finally bring you the Q&A episode I said that I would give you two weeks or so ago, but that got backtracked due to the episodes that we had with, uh, with Stephen Chung on Cycling Science. But here it is, and uh, the topics that I will cover include uh, structuring in recovery into your training plan, polarized training, swim training when my pool is far away, swimming technique and drills, LCHF or the core diet, which one over the other and what are the differences, and finally, which indoor trainer and the trainer software to get. So just before those questions, this episode is sponsored by Precision Hydration. They offer electrolyte drinks so you can stay hydrated and get your individual electrolyte needs met in training and racing. I use it and I love it. Many athletes have been asking me how to get enough calories in in races and long workouts if using just electrolyte drinks as hydration and not regular sports drinks with, uh, with a lot of carbs. And the answer is... Use your hydration to rehydrate and meet electrolyte needs and then use things like gels and bars to get in the calories. This makes it easier on the system to absorb both electrolytes and the carbs. So check them out on precisionhydration.com which uh, I'll link to down below in the show notes. And if you end up buying something, use the discount code thattriathlonshow, all one word, for 15% off. Alright, let's get started with the Q&A. So the first question is from Eivind from Norway. He writes, Hi, I'm struggling with swimming techniques and drills. I have a pool far away from my home, so it's easier to take a running session instead of swimming. Uh, I have some injuries on my hips and uh, I try to do more stretching. Uh, so that's a different question. Uh, for, for that second one, I just say go and check out episode 45 on that triathlon show it's called dysfunctional movement patterns injuries and reduced performance with james dunn so james dunn is a fantastic guest and uh, knows his stuff when it comes to injuries and injury prevention we have downloadable routines on that uh, episode so scientific triathlon dot com forward slash tts 45 the number four and number five will take you to that episode but for your swimming question It's obviously difficult with a pool far away from home. So my question back to you would be, can you get to the pool uh, twice a week? Two sessions per week will take you a long, long way. Uh, If you can get, let's say, one 60-minute session done and one 75 to 90-minute session, 
with structured training, then you get in a lot of structured volume despite just doing two sessions per week. And trust me, if you do that for a year and you have a good training prescription, training plan, you will really make big gains and potentially be be quite successful in your swimming. But that obviously requires good planning and uh, and commitment to those two sessions. So you asked about drills as well, that uh, you have uh, some problems with technique and drills. And drills specifically, that's always a difficult thing. If you do them, you need, in my opinion, to get a few swimming sessions with a coach or a knowledgeable uh, triathlete swimmer, I would say a coach, to get him or her to assess your technique and give you drills based on your technical strengths and weaknesses and not just do random drills. And for that reason, for many age groupers, it's actually not that useful to do drills because they don't have the right purpose when they do them. And uh, I always like to say that the best technique training really is uh, practiced by swimming and practicing technique under load. And I say that despite myself currently doing around about four times 90 minutes of swimming uh, per week mostly focusing on technique and drills but it's very different because i'm now in a squad environment so my situation doesn't really apply to most age groupers and the technique under load that i just mentioned it requires great focus presence and concentration but if you can do that you'll be so far ahead of most others that it'll all be worth it and i highly recommend listening to episodes 3 and episode 70 of uh, the podcast the first one is an interview with jerry rodriguez and the second one is with rory buck and uh, they will teach you a lot more about these concepts and also uh, you can learn more about swimming drills in episode 69 which is called 12 swimming drills and three expert coaches opinions on them including jerry rodriguez opinions actually but just beware that uh, and i actually explain what the purpose of these drills are so that might be a good starting point for you to pick some drills that will work on your specific weaknesses if you know your weaknesses but again beware that just picking any single drill from there because somebody else likes it is not the way to do it every drill you do must have a purpose and you must do it right to work on improving that aspect of technique that you will translate to your actual swimming not just being better at doing drill All right, hope that answers your question, Eivind. Thanks again for sending it in. Now, question number two is from uh, Chris Massey from uh, the United Kingdom. He has a pretty long question, so I'll shorten it a little bit. But he essentially writes that he found the podcast episode number 40 with Jesse Kropelnicki on The Core Diet, which is one of the most popular episodes and one of the best, in my opinion, one of my favorite interviews. Uh, so uh, go and listen to that if you haven't. Uh, but he has also listened to the interview with uh, Tim Noakes on LCHF, which was episode 44. And he writes that, uh, I'm now completely confused, so can you help me, please? Uh, I'm a competitive time trial athlete, and I have had access to the team's dietitian and have uh, paid previously to see a recommended dietitian, both of whom contradicted each other massively. Uh, I have read and reread Jesse's book and totally understand the concept of the core diet. Uh, however, I find I'm gaining too much weight, so I'm now, now thinking the LCHF route may well be the solution. I had tried this before and found that even though I lost weight, my training and race days were traumatic and I had very little in the tank to perform. Whereas on the core diet, I have found my power has improved and I can sustain hours in the saddle without any effects. 
I am at a total loss as to what to do. Uh, I know I need to lose the weight in order to sustain the power-to-weight ratio for racing come the new season. However, LCHF is a real torture chamber for me. Is it worth just sticking with the core diet route? Uh, as the core diet seems to uh, lean towards using carb intake from fruits and vegetables, am I right in thinking Jesse's diet is similar to the LCHF suggested by Tim? Or am I getting this wrong? All right, let's stop there. So yes, you are getting it wrong in that case because the core diet is not an LCHF diet. It can be on rest days, for example. It's the core diet is essentially fuel for the work required, and on rest days, you will yes, you'll eat a lot of veg- vegetables, a bit of fruit, maybe. Essentially, the core diet is very very clean eating outside of your training and your pre and post workout training windows, which are either short or non-existent or scaled to the duration of your training. So for a long, long training day, they may be longer. And during that training window, you may have a recovery meal that is a big bowl of pasta or something. But uh, outside of that, that that is quite an exception. Uh, You really are eating very, very clean. And then you fuel your training sessions with the sports drinks and energy gels uh, when when needed, or actually Jesse suggests doing it in every single session. That's perhaps the one thing that uh, I'm not proposing to doing uh, to do, I should say. But uh, I definitely agree with almost everything of the core diet, including the clean eating. But in strategic points, including for example having some fast carbs in the pre-workout window if you if you need to fuel up for your workout and in your post-workout window then you will also have protein of course like some uh, pasta bolognese would be a great recovery meal in my opinion uh, but anyway that's the difference so on hard workout days with long workouts the core diet suddenly becomes very high carb low fat so you can get up to 80 percent carb or something 70 70 percent maybe which is really a lot it's really a lot and and it's uh, needed it's it's great uh so i think that's that's a great point to make but on the flip side in the off season on the recovery day when you're not in a massive training load and you're not training at all that thing that particular day then you might be very low carbs you might go down to 20 percent carbs or something so so it varies a lot with the carb intake uh, but it's governed by eating clean a clean diet outside of the workout windows uh, whereas so okay to get my opinion on this i will always give my opinion from a performance perspective because that's what i know about that's the research papers that i've been reading a lot I'm not qualified to give an opinion from a health perspective necessarily. There are, I think there seem to be a lot of really good evidence that uh, LCHF may be good for like preventing things that we have in health issues that we have in today's society. So, but I'm not going to take a stance on that because I'm frankly not qualified to do that. But I know the performance side of things and what the the evidence says and uh, LCHF has never been shown to be, or shall I say, high carb, higher carb diets have always been shown to perform better than than lower carb, uh, lower carb diets when you when you compare performance. So so that's it. So for endurance athletes, I should say. So I don't recommend uh, LCHF to anybody unless there are medical or health reasons to do so. I take the performance standpoint and uh, and focus on that. So yes, I think that you should go the core diet route. I think that's what I try to follow mostly. Not necessarily 
to the same extent with always, always fueling my workouts. I don't do that. I'm going to be open and transparent about that. But I, I do try to eat very clean, but then I can have fast carbs like bread or pasta when I get uh, home from a long ride, for example. And and even that window extends a little bit after the ride. So So that's when I have faster carbs that are not necessarily as clean quote unquote but but that's what i do so yes i highly recommend following jesse's take on nutrition not lchf i think it's important for in the name of proper journalism to bring both sides of the table onto this show but uh yeah i am of the definite definitive opinion that uh there's no evidence to suggest that lchf uh improves performance but there is that uh, higher carb diets do but you need to make it right. And as for you gaining weight, um, I say try to think about your portion control. So uh, that's probably one one of the things that, that you can... Yes, you need carbs, but how much are you actually eating right now? Uh, you might be eating way too much uh, or anything, really. It doesn't matter if it's carbs or protein or fats. Whatever you're eating too much of might be causing you to gain weight. So really try to try to be mindful of that. And uh, one more thing, you said that uh, the LCHF wrecks your training and racing. Yes, and uh, that's the thing. It is hard to recover from hard training and hard racing and, and hard to be ready for it, hard to continually perform, even though there are exceptions, I know. And some listeners will email me and say that they've done that and they've heard that other athletes have done that. Yes, but in any control study, it has been shown that uh, you recover faster and you perform better on a higher carb diet. So we're talking averages here and um, different things work for different people. It's all about individualization. So for you, Chris, you've found that LCHF doesn't work for you. Well, better to be at the starting line overweight and undertrained than underweight and overtrained, right? So it sounds like the... The latter may be an area that you're getting into on the LCHF diet. And I think that definitely you can get your weight to your ideal racing weight on the core diet. Just think about how much uh, calories you are getting in on each meal. And actually episode 73 with with Stefan Guyane may be a good episode to listen to for that. So I'll just give you one more quick example about my own use of the core diet so uh, so again in and around training you may get a lot of fast carbs like sports drinks but outside of those training windows it should be super clean so i just had a lentil tuna orange carrot tomato salad and that would be a typical core diet food and i get an appropriate amount of carbs but not too much given that it's 10 hours since i stopped training for today so the lentils have a good amount of carbs, but also protein and the vegetables and orange too. But uh, but yeah, that's uh, it's all very clean. It's no fast carbs. It's uh, legumes rather than uh, than grains. And immediately after the training session, on the other hand, which was an 80 minute swim plus 60 minutes of gym work, I had oatmeal with uh, a banana, an egg and Greek yogurt instead. So much more carbs and protein and faster carbs with the oatmeal rather than the lentils. So that's that's the way it is. It's uh, the core diet is macronutrients, the macronutrients that you need at the particular time that you need them in the way that you need them. Super healthy, clean foods outside the training windows, and in the training windows you have strategic use of sports nutrition and uh, faster carbs like pasta, bread, and so on. Hope this helps. This was a long one, but uh, I hope that you and other listeners will find this useful. 
Okay, so the next question that we have is on polarized training. It's from Mikko, my fellow Finn, and we've uh, had some conversations in the past as well. He asks about uh, the 20% hard, 80% easy split that you typically see in uh, polarized training papers and articles. And he wonders how does uh, this uh, 20% and 80% split uh, refer to training? Is it the actual time taken together, accumulated? Or is it uh, more on a session-by-session basis? So as an example, would 3 times 3 times 3 minutes at 120% of FTP account for 27 minutes of high intensity and the rest of the session, let's say you have a one-hour session, the rest, the 33 minutes would then be classified as easy or would that entire session be classified as hard? So that one-hour session be classified as one-hour hard. And uh, yes, the former is right. You accumulate the minutes on a minute-by-minute basis. So that would mean that from that session you get 27 minutes of high intensity and 33 minutes of low intensity. And when you sum it up on a week-by-week or month-by-month basis, you do that on a minute-by-minute accumulation. So uh, yeah, that's it. And just to quickly reiterate for people that are not familiarized with uh, polarized training, generally in papers they use three zones to classify polarized training. And one is below the aerobic threshold. Go back to episode 70 to learn more about the thresholds. And that's zone one. And then zone two is between the two thresholds, between the aerobic and anaerobic threshold. And then the zone three is uh, above the anaerobic threshold. And the main idea is in polarized training is that you spend very little time in zone two between the two thresholds. But actually when you go hard, you go above, you go at the anaerobic threshold or above it. And, and the rest is easy below the aerobic threshold. So so that's where the so for example, 80% below the aerobic threshold and 20% above it, e- you see even more extreme splits. Not necessarily extreme, because 20% when you train a lot is quite a lot if you want to go above the anaerobic threshold. But but it's not uncommon to see like 90% uh, at uh, below the aerobic threshold and 10% above it and maybe some um, you take some a few percentage points and add them to that zone 2 in between so that's polarized training hope that helps the next question is from Kylie in Australia she writes I have a question about recovery I've been reading both the, triath- the triathletes training bible by Joe Friel and the well-built triathlete by Matt Dixon Joe Friel suggests two or three build weeks followed by a recovery week, while Matt Dixon uses a 14-day pattern with extra recovery days in the second week. So far, I've been using three build weeks followed by a recovery week, and I've definitely not been recovering enough, but I'm wondering whether to reduce to two build weeks or to follow the structure suggested by Matt Dixon in his book. I'd be very interested in your thoughts on the topic. Hi Kylie, nice to hear from you. Great question. Uh, There's no simple answer to it, but uh, here's my quick take on it. As a general guideline, if I start working with a new athlete that's over 35 years of age, I tend to always start with uh, two build weeks, one easier week, as you say, Joe Friel's, one of Joe Friel's types of uh, recovery structure. For some, it doesn't work, and then we might change it. For example, one of my athletes used a 10-day cycle, we have now gone actually gone back to a more weekly or 
free week cycle, but uh, for a while there, and now it seems to be working, but for a while there we used a 10-day cycle with three very easy rest or recovery days at the end of each 10-day cycle. Uh, so, and Matt Dixon's uh, recovery days in a 14-day cycle is another uh, great way. There's no right or wrong answer, really. Uh, so you need to test what works for you. And you know now that three build weeks is too much for you. You say yourself that you, you're not recovering enough. That's great. Kudos to you for knowing, for realizing that and realizing that you need to change. So change, try one, maybe go to two weeks build and one week rest first, just because working on weekly schedule is, is just very practical. So, so I think that's one of the benefits in addition to the actual structure. And it's similar to what you have been doing, but you're getting recovery more often, obviously. But if that doesn't work for you either, then maybe try Matt's system or even the 10-day system that I just uh, mentioned above. And uh, for the listeners, we've had both Joe Friel and Matt Dixon on the show. Joe Friel in episode one, scientifictriathlon.com forward slash TTS1, and Matt Dixon in episodes 13 and 60. So TTS 13 and 60, and those are all numbers, uh, one free and six zero and one after the TTS. And you can find them on thattriathlonshow.com, of course, as well. And the final question for today is from Christian in Northern Ontario, Canada. He asks about, or he writes, I uh, heard on a recent podcast that you mentioned really enjoying using an indoor trainer. I'm looking at some options as the temperatures are dropping, making morning rides not so enjoyable. Do you have some advice on what trainer and uh, what software to get to to go with it? Lots of choices now. And uh, starting with the software, it's uh, very easy for me to recommend Trainer Road as your software. You won't regret it. I have pretty much all of my athletes uh, sign up for Trainer Road, at least those that are based in climates where you need to train indoors and uh, they are loving it as well. But uh, that said, I honestly have never used Swift or Sufferfest or the other platforms that are out there. And I know as well that Exert, which uh, we'll have on a future podcast, now have their own opportunity. So Exert is an option that you can look into. It looks very, very interesting. But Trainer Road for me is the one that I've used. I love it. It's really, really great. And you won't regret signing up for it. I would say don't overthink it. I guarantee if you go with Trainer Road, you'll be very satisfied and you can make the decision right now and don't waste precious training time pondering on that decision. And you can also listen to the episode that I did with Chad Timmerman from Trainer Road. That was episode 38, so you can go back to that and, and listen to it. For the trainer itself, it really depends on what your needs for it are, what you want to get out of it, simply. I... Yeah, I would say, first of all, you can go to DC Rainmaker and he has an annual guide for trainers with uh, all sorts of recommendations and four different types of persons. So I'll link to that in the show notes uh, and uh, and you can have a look at that. Personally, I'm in the process of getting a Stack Zero. It's uh, for The primary reason is that it's completely silent. It doesn't even uh, touch the wheel of your bike. It uses magnets to create resistance. And now that I'm living in a flat chair in Lisbon, I want a completely quiet trainer. But it's also very good that it, uh, since it doesn't touch the wheels, you don't have uh, any unnecessary wear and tear on your tires. So you can wear even your race tires 
on your trainer and and there won't be any wear and tear on them. You're race ready all the time and it's very portable. You can fold it up and uh, it's flat. You can put it in your hand luggage if you're traveling or in a large backpack. It's only three inches tall. So I'm waiting for that to arrive here in Portugal and uh, I'll give you an update, but I'm sure I love it. I've researched it very much. And for myself, the Stack Zero is a great choice also, I'm getting the one with, even though I have a power meter on my bike, I'm getting the power meter version trainer just in case. And if you don't have a power meter on your bike, then definitely look into the Stack Zero version with a power meter. It's The price of the Stack Zero is uh, 570 for the power meter version and 460 for the non-power meter version. So it's a mid-range trainer, but for what you get, I think it's a very, very good price. So uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting mine and you can you can ask me in uh, maybe a month or a few weeks or so. Well, a month when I've had time to use it properly, what I think. But uh, yeah, that's that's what I'm getting. But get what you need. Go to that DC Rainmaker guide, which I'll link to below in the show notes and you'll find what fits your needs the best. So there we go. I hope that you found this Q&A very, very useful. It's a mixed bag of questions. And I want to thank you again for keeping sending me your questions. That's very useful. Helps me come up with topics for the podcast and bring guests on. And I try to get to most of the questions as soon as I can. But in some cases, uh, I can't do it because I need to prioritize, obviously, the people that I coach myself. But but for the most part, you will get an answer either in an email or on a podcast episode like this a bit down the line. So keep sending me those questions. I really appreciate it. And I read every single one of your questions, definitely. You can find the show notes and all the links mentioned in this episode on thattriathlonshow.com as usual. And if you have those questions, you can send them to me on my email, michael at scientifictriathlon.com. That's Michael with a K. Or you can tweet me on Twitter where my handle is at SciTriat. And uh, I also want your feedback, whether you like these kinds of Q&A episodes, or if you want more interviews, more solo episodes with specific kinds of topics. Let me know what you think and what kinds of episodes you look forward to the most, which are your must-listen-to episodes, and which are the ones that you tend to skip. The more feedback I get, that will help me guide the direction of the show and make it the best possible listening experience for you, which is my ultimate goal, of course. And just a quick reminder, I mentioned this a couple of episodes ago, uh, but I'm now one of the coaches in Stride's Power Coaching Group. So I'm making a concerted effort on becoming as good as I can possibly become with using and coaching runners and triathletes on running with power. So I'm now doing, and I'm using WKO4, you can check out episode 72 for more information on that software, to to analyze and use especially running power data, because analyzing it means nothing without uh, actionable takeaways and uh, how to use that in training and racing. So uh, I'm now offering running power consultation sessions or performance reports if you don't have time to sit down on a Skype session. So different sort of things are possible in that realm. Uh, and it will always include an action plan for how what you can get out from your running with power. So that's uh, something that you can use uh, to improve and get faster. That's very, very important. That's always the cornerstone of everything we do in coaching, trying to get you faster fitter, happier, enjoying triathlon, but in this case, faster. 
and uh, email me at michaelscientifictriathlon.com to learn more about that if you're interested. Thanks to Precision Hydration for supporting that triathlon show. If you haven't already, go and take their free online sweat test on precisionhydration.com to get a personalized hydration strategy for your next race and use the discount code thattriathlonshow, all one word, for 15% off any purchases. Also check out their blog post that Andy wrote called Different Types of Sports Drinks and When to Use Them. That's all linked in the show notes in the resources for this episode. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.